You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For the hundred or so members of the public who turned out last night to what was billed as an open house, it was information, it was access to information and people that had not been easily available. Army Brigadier General Michelle Link is second in command for the Joint Task Force Red Hill. She's an engineer brought in from Washington, D.C., specifically for this unprecedented mission in a World War II civil engineering marvel that has turned into a liability following fuel contaminating our drinking water. So it's not something that we had a playbook for. There was no guidance that would tell, tell us how do you defuel or remove fuel of this magnitude and capacity from underground storage tanks that had been in place since you know, World War II era for over the last 80 years. So the sheer scope and magnitude and complexity of everything that has to be in place before we can actually begin moving fuel was, was pretty significant. And to be able to say at this point that we really have things well integrated and we're on track and we're ready, provided conditions are met to begin defueling in October is a pretty significant accomplishment that I'm very proud of the team for. I think many people were surprised that there was a need to do so many repairs on the pipeline system. I know the military has said, you know, the tanks are pretty sound, and what was weak was the lines. So while I can't speak to what may or may not have been done, you know, up until this point when the third-party assessments were conducted and they had that different perspective coming in, that recommendation or the recommendations made to get after repairs that were structural, in concern because we've also never moved 104 million gallons out of the facility at once. So extra requirements that maybe needed to be fortified in consideration of, of the sheer volume of fluid that was, was being moved, those would have been out of the normal operating, and so that required a level of attention and focus that, that probably hadn't been considered previously. From an engineering perspective, this project has offered us a lot of opportunities to problem-solve in ways that are not typically So there are not a lot of examples for lessons learned that we could go to. So it required a lot of innovation to think through how do we actually remove and how do we do repairs uh, within a facility this large. So it has challenged us in many ways where we've had to bring that collective thinking and that critical thought process to bear, where we've been able to really go through different concepts and review them and and come back to the table and, and start again many times just to get after a solution because everything that we do within this facility, within our collective experience, has not been done uh, previously of this magnitude. And members of the public we talked to appreciated the opportunity to hear firsthand about what's to come as the military takes the unprecedented step of draining the tanks all at once. Kipapa Gulch resident Michael Dow came to learn what he could because he's on a private water well system that is next to old underground fuel tanks. And he's worried about what's in his drinking water. State Health Department officials uh, did some testing and found trace levels of toxic forever chemicals, PFAS, in the system. The Air Force fuel tank farm in Kibaba Gulch, over the years that I've had to deal with that, I'm just curious to see about while they're defueling this or what type of action they're doing. As you come, you learn a little bit more each time. And what's turned up in your water? TCP, the EBDs. We also have TEC, trifluorine, from the solvents. And I think it's from the fuel tank farms. They used to periodically clean them. They shut it down, put men in the tank, and wash it all into the stream in our wells downstream of that. On hand to observe last night, Border of Water uh, Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau and Operations Manager Erwin Kawada. There was also a Pearl City Peninsula resident still on the Navy's water system, as well as a member of the Native Hawaiian Civic Clubs and even the head of the Democratic Party. Here's Dennis Jung. I'm very happy that the Joint Task Force Hawaii put it on. I think it's it's very impressive that um, the, the officers of the military are, are here to answer questions of people um, and to show their concern for, for our public safety and health and welfare and well-being. Their dedication to making sure that um, their job gets done perfectly. What they have done gives me great confidence that um, they're going to succeed. And so I'm very happy that I came out here to see what's going on. I think everyone should come down if they have the opportunity. I think it's very important that we be informed about um, what our, our government is doing to protect us, and that's very important. 
But one man we came across observing the open house was a Kapuna voice that we hadn't heard before, uh, Kalani Whitford. He retired after 45 years as a federal firefighter and Navy man, and he wrote the emergency response plan and defueling plan for Red Hill back in the day. He says he initially turned down an invitation to join the uh, Red Hill Advisory Committee, but he felt he should come out to share his knowledge. I spent 45 and a half years in the fire department, fire prevention, the last 15 years. Red Hill. First time I entered Red Hill, 1981. 20-something years old. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. If anybody got a chance for going there and really walking, that's history. But for the next 35 years, I mastered the tunnel. I came up with what they call the ERP or emergency response plan. Brought up the plan, including the defuel. Today I'm here at the Veterans Hall down in Kihei Lagoon, and they're talking about Red Hill defuel. I'm glad that the Navy is being proactive and going forward with the defuel plan, but now they're bringing in the voice of the Kupuna. And with the Kupuna, I'm back from standing outside to now I'm on a table discussing the defuel plan. But I'm, I'm really happy for the people of Hawaii that at least they're doing something now instead of not doing nothing at all. And to do that is better than sitting back and not doing anything. Or sitting back and waiting for something bad to happen. Yes. That's uh, obviously when something happened. Right now we're in a very peculiar position because the aquifer of Mauna Loa runs from Mauna Loa to Hawaii. So with the contamination being introduced with the different fuels that Red Hill carries, also we're adding a triple F foam, firefighting foam, pet name PFAS. This, this chemical is forever contaminant, and that's why we need the best of the brains to come in and assess the issue with the water. Also, we need to get the people of Hawaii ready because it's going to, if it runs down to Hawaii Kai, that means all of the shorelines on the South Shore, including Waikiki, Kahala, everything is, is going to be affected. I'm involved because now it's affecting my, the next generation. I've been through many of life's paths and married and had four kids. Now I get nine grandchildren. I really don't want to see them move from here. I need the Kikis to enjoy Hawaii like how I did. Now with the water, I don't know if they might stay or, or even move to the mainland. You say you have unfinished business, and so you are here to be a voice for the community, which I guess had not been a part or invited to the table. The voices had to be certified, qualified to be asked to even come to the table. Fortunately, I've been asked to come to the table because of my my knowledge, and I'm the author of the emergency response plan. Um, the last chapter of the book covers defueling. Admiral asked me, so how are you going to defuel if you get a chance? I said, give me three weeks, I empty all 20 tanks. And then schedule with Camel Industrial Park, and I'll get the fuel outside of the buoys and in Bubbles Point Harbor and offload the fuel. And then I went through this last five years of doors slamming. They don't want to hear me. Now tonight, um, I'm here at, at the opening for the Navy defueling plan and talk story with the community. I really urge all who really concerned about the water to come and engage. The more voices they hear that is interested in this, the more they can gauge that everybody is not sitting back and taking this lightly. But I'm here to unite the team. I need to get the team from the government side, the congressional team, the DOH, EPA, Ernie Lau, and the three major congressional team members, uh, Maisie Hirono, Brian Schatz, and AKs, and unite them with the military task force so we all be on the same page running the same thing. The only reason why... I, I say that is to defuel the tunnel through the main system in inside the tunnel 
you gotta de- you gotta understand that 37 systems that support the defuel system. So they all gotta be in concert with each other. The electrical power, we're running hundreds and hundreds of thousands of electric, that gotta run smoothly. We cannot have no fine miss, big breakage, because that's gonna cause the whole tank to, now the tank goes from standing up to lying down all the way to Pearl Harbor, and it's gonna stay in there. At Attic 2, I put one, um, what they call one submarine liquid tight door to hold the field malka of the, of the door until the Navy can hook up a line on the ocean side and then start sucking all the field out. That was a safety precaution. I get 37, 38 people working daily in that tunnel. My job is to mitigate all the issues so I can go in and rescue. But I told Admiral I would never send one truck of rescue to get the guys out if I don't want nothing on sound plan. So I, I drew up the plan. Navy has the plan, only now they're engaging with the plan. So When did you give the plan to the military? The day I left the department, my last day, December 31st, 2012. The same way I entered the department, the same way I left. I left all the information on the, on the stairs, and the Navy chief came out and picked them up at, at Building 150 Command. I left the orchid lay, and I want to thank the good Lord for allowing me for working the fire department that long. And I want to ask the Lord, one door closed, I know you're going to open up another door. A year later, I put in for safety. I become a safety director for National Fire. I get the contract for radio to install the system that I wrote up a year before. And I, I stayed there for the construction project, installing 1,100 pieces of fire, fire equipment, smoke detectors, heat detectors, um, vapor detectors, everything. And all the, all the displays, the panel boards. And it, so I finished that contract, and then I left the company Two weeks later, I got another call from Virginia. That company got the contract, and then I'm back on a job again. So all of these issues dealing with the dropping of the water and the PFAS or the AFFF is as common as one piece of wire is not connected or they disconnected. When they do that, the com- computer cannot talk to the other computer to think automatically. So with that being said, I'm here to help the Navy to reset everything back and then bring defueling as a priority for get that out. You know, we've heard so much about PFAS, and at the time, you know, if there were spills, prior spills, you know, there wasn't a, a requirement to report those leaks, those discharges, and so there'll be a price to pay for that down the road. But what is it that troubles you the most hearing about the PFAS leaks? PFAS, don't get me wrong, it's an unreal uh, firefighting agent. In the state of Hawaii, in, in, the, in the 90s, in the 80s and the 90s, we had big fires down by Ivale. And so with the big tanks going off, that's what we brought in from Hickam and from Barbara's Point, the PFAS. The PFAS was the agent that is designed to reduce the ignition point of reigniting. And so when we lay that on the fire line, we got the fire down below ignition point, the fire goes out. And nobody really thought about it because 3M never did sit down the, sit the department down and talk about the hazards. But we worked in and around it for all those years. And we're not the only one. Nationwide, they use that for training, for fighting big aircraft fires, big ship fires. But now knowing what you know about the hazards and, you know, you've dealt with it as a, as a work condition. Well, knowing what I know now, it's a very serious thing to contemplate only because when I was a firefighter, we worked with asbestos. Then we worked with PFAS. Each of the two agents is very dangerous for your, for your lungs. And that thing can take you out. PFAS can be in your blood. So many different ailments come out of that. Cancer is one of them. So we really didn't understand, quite frankly, when the fire department got... Only now that it's becoming very 
front page news that uh, getting into this PFAS at AFFF, we finally realized what the effects on the human body itself. And so, so now they get developing another agent. Well, you said to me earlier that you have more time behind you than you have ahead of you, but you have this unfinished business. What I meant by that is every day I get in order. I thank the good Lord that I can breathe every day. But basically, when I look at my grandchildren in the eyes, I see the days of my youth. Trying to um, contemplate and thinking about what could happen to them in the future. I'm not going to be here. But what I can do before I leave is to be able to get in here and get the water clean as much as possible. But hey, the God that will speak this into existence is the only one that can really fix it 100%. Um, and, I, and I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So pray for a good outcome as the military undertakes defueling 100 million gallons of fuel at its Red Hill facility come October. We've been hearing from Kalani Whitford, a retired federal firefighter, who he says put together an emergency response and defueling plan for Red Hill before he retired in 2012. The public will get a chance to turn out at the open house tonight from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Los Banos Hall at Cahey Lagoon Memorial Park. A look for signs. The military says video and information about ways to provide public input as well as a defueling schedule should be available online today. An island-wide power outage has limited the information out of Guam, which was in the path of a super typhoon. Typhoon Mawa was expected to bring wind gusts up to 150 miles an hour. The last storm in uh, 2002 did $580 million in damage. The American Red Cross offices in Guam fall under the jurisdiction of offices here at Diamond Head. We talked to Diane Peters-Wynn, CEO of the American Red Cross Pacific Islands region, which includes American Samoa and the Commonwealth of the Northern, Northern Marianas. Guam avoided a direct hit as the super typhoon passed up north. But here's Peters-Wynn talking about what they do know. What is the latest that you're hearing from the situation in Guam? Well, Catherine, as you know, this uh, was Super Typhoon Mawar was the strongest storm to impact the U.S. territories of Guam and CNMI in decades. And on Tuesday, President Biden declared a state of emergency for both Guam and NMI. The Super Typhoon did pass to the north of Guam, so avoided the direct hit there, but it has been just hammering Guam and particularly Rota in CNMI with powerful wind gusts up to 165 miles per hour, so kind of equivalent to Category 4 hurricane, and it was also compared to being you know, hit in a tornado for hours on end. And the, uh, of course, heavy rains, uh, re- reports of a foot or more uh, was much more expected, life-threatening storm surge. So we do expect the damage on Guam could be devastating. You, you know, you probably know that something like 40,000 homes are built with the lighter construction materials, and those could see considerable damage. The power is out pretty much on the entire island. The initial reports, there were some thousand households that still had electricity, but now it's probably uh, pretty much island-wide electricity, water, and communications, including Internet, will be probably unavailable for days, and it could be even weeks after the storm passes that those are unavailable. We've seen in the past folks here from Hawaii reach out. Hawaiian Electric in the past has sent teams down there to help with the lines, you know, and to hook up power. Uh, once it's safe to do that, you know, roads have, been, have to be cleared, that kind of a thing. And, you know, you have your volunteers uh, that are always ready right. to respond to a disaster. So we've been working very closely with the local government partners there, agencies such as FEMA, and uh, stand ready to support those families to provide assistance to anyone affected by this super typhoon, Moar, and, uh, you know, prepared to offer life-sustaining services and resources with our partners. 
you mentioned the uh, Red Cross disaster workers. So we have over a dozen that uh, already are there. You know, they weathered the storm, and those include a trained leadership team. They're already there on the ground, but we have up to 200 more seasoned, trained Red Cross disaster responders ready to deploy. And we also have been assembling, you know, materiel to be deployed to the islands. Also, just to share some information about the shelters on both Guam and NMI, we partner with the Department of Education for sheltering. So Guam and NMI are 20 hours ahead of Hawaii. So on their local time Tuesday night, there were close to a thousand people in the, about 15, over 15 of our partner shelters. So that's going to be, you know, in the days ahead where we will be able to assist. We have already uh, prepositioned some relief items like uh, water, shelf-stable meal, cleanup kits, tarps, and hygiene supplies. We are ready as soon as the conditions permit us to get out there and start working on the recovery and response. You know, when I did talk to uh, family and friends that are still there, and they know what to do. They are in this typhoon alley and uh, have had yeah. you know, multiple super typhoons in the past. And, you know, growing up with a couple of them, they are pretty scary. Yeah. And I remember a time, yeah. you know, when I was without power for three months and without water for one month. Wow. Uh, the last uh, typhoon of this magnitude, I think it cost like $580 million in damages. Mm -hmm. I was there in 2002, shortly after Pong Sonwa hit, and I remember the, you know, the water, we couldn't drink the water when I was there, but before that, I mean, and when when I was there just this past September, I had asked people, you know, their stories either from Pong Sonwa or before that, of course, Super Typhoon Karen in 1962. So were you, you were on island for both of those? Uh, I was on island for Karen and then Pamela in 76. Uh, oh, I was not okay. there for Paca uh, and Pongsana, but uh, yeah, the serious damage. And yes, I mean, it's hard to imagine winds, 150 mile an hour winds pummeling a, a tiny island. And the, the crazy thing is that if these storms are slow and they just sit. That's right. And the winds just whip up and, and you know, if people, you know, know the image of Moanalua Gardens and all those magnificent trees there, you know, Guam has a plaza. And I remember coming, uh, going out after a storm and seeing all those monkey pod trees on their side. Uh, oh, so it it, oh, it is devastating. And also, Catherine, we wanted to mention our major U.S. military facilities on Guam. And we do coordinate closely with them. And they, uh, you know, move the ships out to sea and so forth in preparation. But through our Red Cross Service to the Armed Forces Program, we've been closely coordinating with the military there. And I think for our Hawaii listeners, you know, it's always important to uh, bring it back home and say, we, you know, the storm season began in the Pacific Ocean on May 15th, but our, typically our Hawaii hurricane season is just about to ramp up June 1st, um, runs to the end of November, which doesn't mean that we couldn't get a hurricane you know, outside of that period. And, and so uh, to be prepared, I always say that our region, we, we are the only region in the U.S. that uh, has the three different terminologies for the same phenomenon typhoon in the western pacific cyclone in the south pacific and hurricane of course here in hawaii but we just you know want everyone be prepared don't wait until it's already on on the way Um, expect to to have these coming our way we've been fortunate but you know with climate change we do know that there are more natural disasters now than ever before that period between major national disasters continues to shrink in 2020, there were something like 21 natural disasters costing over $1 billion. And in 2020, uh, 2020, that was, and in 2021, it was just about the same, slightly, uh, maybe one less. So be prepared, you know, have a plan, get your kit, and, you know, be alert, pay attention. All right, yes, good advice, uh, because June 1st is a right around the corner. I just want to ask if everybody that can to please consider making a gift to help those folks that have been impacted by Super Typhoon Moar. There's a couple ways they can do it. The easiest is probably just to go online to redcross.org or they can call 1-800-RED-CROSS, which is 800-733-2767. 
or they can just text the word typhoon to 90999 and that that will be able to let them make a $10 donation by texting the word typhoon and we'll have links on our website later today. We've been hearing from Diane Peters-Wynn, CEO of the American Red Cross Pacific Islands region, giving us an update on the super typhoon which has affected Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of hands-on art experiences for children and adults. Learn more about classes, workshops, keiki art camps, and drop-in art making at honolulumuseum.org. Today on The Daily, why the fall of Bakhmut in Ukraine may not be what it seems, and why the next few months are so critical to the outcome of the war. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Beach House Restaurant on Kauai. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application by searching the Beach House Kauai. are commemorating National Emergency Medical Services Week. And on the Big Island, the nonprofit Friends of First Responders is making the rounds, delivering gift baskets to EMS workers. The organization was started by Rene Godoy and provides resources and support services for first responders and their families. Godoy's been the Hawaii County uh, Police Department chaplain since 2007 and the fire department's chaplain since 2015. She also recently retired as senior pastor of Hilo's Glad Tidings Church, where her predecessor also served as police chaplain. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Godoy about her organization. What are some things about Hawaii's EMS staff that the public may not know but should know? You know, they are understaffed. They respond to a wide range of things. I think people would be surprised at the kinds of things that they respond to and the pressures that they work under in short staff and the amount of calls that they have to respond to, I think would most people don't realize. And just the broad spectrum from minor things to extremely traumatic things that they're exposed to. And I think maybe the one thing that the public is not so much aware of is how sleep deprived they are. You know, there's a lot of sleep deprivation when they're getting calls all through the night. You know, go to sleep for a little while, and then that alarm goes off again. And that, you know, up and down, roller coaster kind of thing, adrenaline rush and and adrenaline dumps, they refer to it, it can be brutal. I know here on Oahu, I've talked to EMS services, and I hear they're experiencing similar things with being short-staffed, being spread out thin. And then especially during the pandemic, things were kind of elevated to another extreme. Did, was that the same experience on Hawaii oh, County? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. It was really bad. And then my son-in-law is a firefighter on the Big Island, and he was during the pandemic. And on top of dealing with all of the trauma of the public, there was this fear that they contended with about bringing COVID home to their families. I mean, having to isolate, you know, sometimes be apart from their family, having to be very careful if even one person on the shift got it to quarantine, which then made them even shorter staffed. But the fear of bringing COVID home to your family, you know, having to make sure you strip down at the station, you change clothes, I mean, that really took it over the top. And I know there's an effort here in Oahu to give EMS staff opportunities to process the trauma and stress that they experience on the job. I did an interview with Mark Kunimune last year. He has created some of those kinds of opportunities where EMS workers, they can volunteer in a lo'i or paddle a canoe out to some of the small islands Mm -hmm. here. 
are there programs, similar programs or opportunities like that on the Big Island for our EMS staff to process the stress that they undergo? Yeah, there are programs, and that's one of the things that we're trying to do is assist those programs, but also to have it available on our website, you know, to put our feelers out in the community. You know, because I have the unique opportunity that I'm part of the peer units of both our fire and our police department, I am aware of people that are traumatized. You know, I'll hear about it. I'll hear about the events because I work as a chaplain. You know, I'm able to recommend resources to people as we become aware that they've been traumatized. And that's another thing that we're trying to do on our website is build a page of resources that are available. But thank you for interviewing Mark because it was through that interview on your radio station that we connected with Mark. That's how we connected with Mark, yeah. One of our board members who knew Mark because he retired as a fire deputy chief over here on the Big Island was going around the island delivering baskets and heard him on the radio and said, hey, we got to, you know, we got to connect with him. And that's how we connected with Mark. Oh, that's awesome. In your job as chaplain of Hawaii County Police Department and Fire Department, I imagine you've seen and heard firsthand how first responders and their families are impacted by the job and the sacrifices made for a job. My son is a firefighter. We know what it's like to have restless nights wondering Mm -hmm. if he's going to come home. What are some things the public may not know about what families go through when their loved one is a first responder? Yeah, there's, of course, unique challenges. Police families, the trauma that they experience because they also worry about retaliation from criminals, and that's a huge fear. And for a child of a police officer, I think there's always that fear that something will happen to the parent. You know, when they go on and they see on the news, officer shot, you know, that could be their parent. So I think officers deal with that. That's unique to the law enforcement. But something that's common for fire and law enforcement is that, you know, when there's a natural disaster or things of that nature, that's when you want your spouse home but they can't be home because they have to keep the public safe. So they have to try to secure their homes or whatever they need to do before they go to, they're going to get called out in an emergency and they just have to respond. So for, for EMS, you know, when those things are happening, you know, they can't be with their families. And so there's that. And also because of the shifts they work and because they're on their public safety, they might miss very important events in their family, you know, birthdays and Christmas and holidays. They get called away at a moment's notice. And so I think that that puts a lot of stress on the family. And we've talked about the stress that that the EMS workers undergo, and, and you just touched on the stress that the family also has to go through. You started Friends of First Responders in 2021. What led you to start your nonprofit? Why did you see a need for it? We just, there was so little we could do. We didn't have funds. And while the departments are very supportive, you know, we have to remember their first mission is public safety. So they have to take care of the safety of the public. They don't have a lot of funds and they don't have a staff person devoted to just their health and wellness of their team. So we were very frustrated. There was a number of us that I had worked with through the years and Whenever we'd get together, we'd express that same frustration that we're, you know, we're not doing enough, we don't have enough resources. When we started the nonprofit, we weren't really sure how far it would go. We thought, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try this. This is a vision we have. We started our nonprofit under our church's nonprofit so that we could start right away. And then if it didn't go anywhere, well, you know, we just fold it up. But then if it really took off, we'd get on our own. And so the first year already, we were able to do so many things. So many things happened. We had good community support. Funds started coming in. And so before the year was out, we said we have to go on our own. And then we did go and establish our own nonprofit. And the community support, I mean, the community loves first responders. And it was just a matter of bringing them together, you know, having a bucket to receive things. It's been very rewarding. We've been, we're able to do so much more than we could do just as a chaplain or just as a peer unit member. And I think the funding is a big thing. And then we also, most of us are retired, so we are able to put our energy and plan things well. And for first responders or, fa- or first responder families that are listening, how does your nonprofit serve the community? What kinds of services does it offer? So... One of the main things we do is we do help with training, peer unit training. 
we also do events like family fun days. And, you know, we serve all first responders, so it's not just police and fire, but we do other agencies, you know, and emergency room personnel. So we do those events to bring people together. We recently started a police wives group. And wherever we see opportunity to start something, we're also available to help with debriefing agencies that might not have their own peer unit, but go through a very traumatic event. So we've provided that help as well. And just come alongside and support, you know, anyone. We have a couples retreat that is planned for September that we're really excited about because we really hope to be able to help the marriages and, you know, the families in any way that we can. When we think about our first responders, I think most people would be happy to donate time or money to show gratitude for all they do. You've been the chaplain for Hawaii County Police Department for 16 years and chaplain for Hawaii Mm -hmm. County Fire Department for seven. You started Mm -hmm. this nonprofit to benefit first responders and their families. Why do you do what you do? I don't know. I just, I, you know, I just have a passion for them. When I got involved with the police chaplaincy, you know, you weren't quite sure what you were getting into, but I had a heart for law enforcement. And that also led me to fire. And just seeing what they do, what they go through for the public safety, I mean, it's just the pressure that, it's just incredible, the sacrifice they make. And I just have a passion for them and their families. And it's shared by others. We have a great board, and they're all people that share the same passion that just want to help them in any way that we can. You know, they're out there keeping the community safe. They're out there serving the community, but who takes care of them with all the trauma that they're exposed to? I mean, it's they're exposed to more trauma in a month than most of us in our entire lifetime are ever exposed to. So I just have a passion and a love and appreciation for that segment, and, and that's just where I want to spend my energy. Pastor Rene, thank you so much for your time. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Russell. That was the Friends of First Responders founder, Renee Godoy, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to more information about the Big Island Nonprofit on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, a network of businesses striving to sustain workers, communities, and the environment with the June 1st Pauhana Mixer at Arts and Letters Nu'uanu, chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, Tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting An Evening with Judy Collins. The singer-songwriter performs 7.30 p.m. Wednesday, May 31st. Tickets available at hawaiitheater.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. The Canadian goose may look out of place on our tropical shores, but this migratory bird has a long history in our islands and flies in here from time to time. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. Canada geese are very common birds native to North America, but are uncommon winter visitors in the Hawaiian islands. They have long black necks with a distinctive white chin strap and are pretty big, standing up to three feet tall and weighing 12 to 15 pounds. They can be found in any wetland area as well as grassy fields where they forage on aquatic plants, grasses, seaweed, and grains. 
They're particularly noticeable overhead when flying in a characteristic V formation, honking loudly. While Canada geese are rare winter migrants to Hawaii, they hold a special place in bird lore here as the ancestors of our nene, or Hawaiian goose. Based on fossil DNA evidence, about a half million years ago, a flock of Canada geese arrived on the island of Hawaii and decided not to leave, evolving into three different species of native geese, including the much smaller nene, the larger nene nui, and a flightless goose about four times the size of Nene, creatively named the giant Hawaiian goose. All of these birds are completely different from the four species of well-known giant flightless moa nalo, which evolved from a flock of ducks, not geese, that arrived in Hawaii millions of years earlier. Our beloved Nene is the last survivor of any of these birds, and almost didn't make it to the 21st century. But fortunately, its numbers are steadily increasing. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. Station Stephanie Hahn continues exploring this issue of belonging as we mark Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Today we hear from Betsy Kim, a founding member of the Council of Korean Americans. She shares how her feelings of home changed over the years and shares her personal journey of identity and belonging. I am Korean, but I was um, born in Japan. My brother and I were both born in Japan, and then we moved actually to the mainland when we were um, toddlers and then um, lived on the East Coast in Virginia for several years before we moved to Hawaii. Lived here from middle school through high school, graduated and went away to the mainland for college, but my parents stayed here and Hawaii was their home. So all through college, all through my adult life, my parents lived here. So we would come back here for the holidays during college. So I definitely consider Hawaii home. And how is your experience here as a young girl? Coming over, that's kind of that pivotal age where you're uh, hitting adolescence. It was a little bit of an adjustment. You know, we came here, we looked like we fit in because we're, we're Asian. But then... As soon as we opened our mouths, everyone, <laughs> you know, you could tell that we didn't come from Hawaii because we were from the East Coast and from Virginia, which is a little bit Southern. So I think that we might have even had a slight Southern accent. So it was interesting because for the first time, I'm living in a place where I look around and it's like, oh, my gosh, everybody looks like me. And yet I still didn't quite fit in because mm. I wasn't born and raised here in Hawaii. So it took some time. Yeah. It wasn't as overt as when we were living on the mainland because when we were living on the mainland, we definitely got teased. We got the derogatory comments, ching chong and, you know, slant, slanted mm-hmm. eyes. How come your eyes are slanted? Can you see out of your eyes? That type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Hawaii, we didn't face that type of verbal direct discriminatory racial treatment but it was more just like didn't quite fit in so didn't quite fit in but it definitely wasn't as outwardly hostile as it was on the mainland right there was a difference yeah and then you went away so can you describe what propelled you there and then what brought you back for college I went away for college and I stayed as close to Hawaii as I could I only applied to schools in California because I just wanted to stay as close to Hawaii as I, as I could and so went to college went to California for college and then after that you know the world just kind of opens up right once you're on the mainland and then you make friends 
there were some people from Hawaii from my college, at my college, which was great. But most of my friends in college were people from the mainland. So I kind of graduated from college and just my interests, I guess. I was a political science government major, so my interest was kind of wanting to go to Washington, D.C. to have that experience and then stay there for decades. And then in 2012, my husband and I decided to adopt, and we adopted a child from Korea. And at that time, you know, my parents were getting older. We had a young child, and we just thought that, you know, this, this is a great time an opportune moment for us to go back to Hawaii since my parents were getting older and have our son have a relationship at least with one set of grandparents, right? So we moved back to Hawaii in 2015. There was a study by the Asian American Foundation. It revealed that there was a level of fear and discomfort and an idea that many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders of of not belonging to United States. What do you think is the root of this issue? And how do you think of belonging? It's definitely disconcerting to see these statistics and the fact that the study showed that more than 70% of Asian Americans don't feel like they belong or they don't feel safe. It's sad that we're here in 2023 and that percentage is so high. It's hard to describe the root of that problem. Thinking back on my childhood and, you know, feeling that sense of being ostracized when I was on the mainland, I guess I would have hoped that in my lifetime that that feeling would have improved. And the fact that there seems to be a resurgence now of I don't know, outright racism against Asian Americans. Sadly, I think that the leadership of our country lent itself to that. You know, I do have to say that I think the whole coronavirus pandemic and the rhetoric around the source of that, the pandemic, which was furthered by the president of the United States at the time, just those types of things, I think, have have definitely not helped Mm -hmm. and have fanned the flames and kind of moved the needle back. So it has been really disconcerting to see that and and to see the numbers um, in this recent study. And while you state that you really wanted your child to engage also with your parents, was there a thought that your child, who is Korean-American, would be living and growing up in a racial majority environment. Did that play into any of your decisions about coming back? Absolutely. Having that experience as a young child, you know, and and I know that, you know, since he would be coming here when he was really young, he was only three when we moved to Hawaii, that he would be growing up here and he would be like a local child, fully, you know, living that experience of being surrounded with kids who look like him. So it definitely did play into our decision to come here. And he is thriving here. He is absolutely thriving here in a way I think that sadly I didn't get to experience as a child, as a young child anyway. Just a game changer, I think, for for young people to have that feeling of just acceptance and confidence in themselves, to not have to worry about that type, uh, in, in addition to all of the things that you go through, you know, as a young child, but just having that identity not questioned, you know, and that you are accepted for who you are. If you grow up in Hawaii versus growing up on the mainland, then you're going to feel more of a belonging to the American narrative, potentially? Yes, I think so. And Hawaii is such an interesting place because, yes, we are. American, but I also feel like, you know, we're local first in some ways. And it's ironic because I didn't have that sense of belonging as my younger self. But coming back here for sure, I just, I feel very embraced Mm -hmm. and I feel very local and I feel a part of that culture. And it's hard to um, replicate that anywhere else. Just so comforting. I just feel a connectedness to the people here in Hawaii that I don't know if I necessarily felt 
that connectedness on the mainland. I mean, of course, I had very good friends there, but it's just kind of this unspoken bond that you have with people here that is just so encouraging, affirming, I guess, very, very affirming and comforting and encouraging. Any words that you want to say to people, uh, especially if there are Asian American, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiians who feel that they don't belong to the national discourse or feel some kind of anxiety? I think that it's, it's, it's something to keep an eye on, you know, sadly, um, to be aware of. At the same time, I think we have a lot to be grateful for here in Hawaii that we don't have to experience this type of alienation and not feeling safe. And I definitely have empathy for Asian Americans on the mainland because I live there, obviously. I think that it's, it's important to keep tabs and keep in mind the national narrative. But at the same time, I guess it helps us to realize how fortunate we are that we don't have to have that type of experience here in Hawaii. I really appreciate you speaking with me, Betsy. Thank you so much. It was Bye-bye. great to talk to you. Bye-bye. That was HPR's Stephanie Hahn talking to Hawaii resident Betsy Kim, who shared her perceptions on home and belonging. Well, we have to go now. Up tomorrow, we learn about how FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has teamed up with the local radio station to help boost our emergency broadcast system. Leave us your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find all of our shows archived online for searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 